Hey, it's Andrew here, and today on the show, we welcome Pulkit Agral, co-founder and CEO at Chameleon, a platform that helps companies build user onboarding without writing a line of code. Tune in as we discuss why you should care about your user onboarding experience, its relationship to churn and retention, and user onboarding tests that you can run in your business. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hi, Pukit. Welcome on the show. It's a pleasure to have you today. Hi. Yes, excited to be on. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So user onboarding, what is it and why should people care? That's a good question. Often people think user onboarding is just part of the setup flow. So maybe those are the swipe screens on mobile or some tour on your web app. But I think we believe user onboarding it goes beyond that. It's the process of introducing users to new value in the product. Now that can mean right in the beginning when they first sign up, the whole product is new and so there's a lot of new value to be gained. But it extends across the lifecycle of a user because every time you launch a new feature or you make a change to the product, then there's some component of new value that you're adding and the user needs to be onboarded to that until they discover and internalize that value. So it does extend uh, across the user lifecycle and it can have many formats. Um, it doesn't have to be specifically as narrow as some screens or some tour. Uh, it's a whole system, and that can include different channels, including email, in-product, um, and and uh, you know the various messaging that you will send. So I don't know. That's a little longer definition, but I think it's valuable as you think about how to leverage user onboarding to drive growth. Absolutely. Um, yourselves specifically, obviously, so you must have seen a lot of different uh, user onboarding uh, of your time at Chameleon. Uh, what has been some of the like sort of standout takeaways that you've seen from companies that are really doing user onboarding well? Yeah, so I can talk about a couple. Um, so we can talk about something like a Duolingo, um, which is a language learning software. Um, and it's great because it's very playful. It's very active. And uh, as you kind of begin your journey, you're starting to do very quickly. And that's a good takeaway is you want to help users take actions early in their process and their journey. User onboarding isn't about showing people your product or giving them a, a full on tour of all the functionality. They haven't come to your product just to learn how it works. They've come to solve some need or 
fulfill some desire. So the quicker you can get people to take action, um, the more effective your, your user onboarding can be. So that's one reason why kind of Duolingo is really good. I can also talk about a very common example that people reference Slack. But one, one thing I'll, I'll reference in Slack is the fact that they use very bright and bold colors and a very uh, friendly and warm aesthetic. And the reason that that's valuable is because they are really confident about their user onboarding and they um, very explicitly present that as something that's valuable and that users should pay attention to. It's not something that they relegate to ugly design because they feel like it's a chore or something that they're compelled to do. And so by embracing the idea of a product tour with these tooltips that Slack traditionally used, um, then they're kind of making it a beautiful experience that users can, can really resonate with. So, you know, that's another takeaway when you're building your user onboarding, be confident, be proud, uh, and build something that's really lovable rather than thinking of it as something that comes you know, right at the end of the product and something that's kind of a, uh, a something that's not very, you know, get, not given much love. Um, Scott Belsky, who's the founder of Behance and, and chief product officer at Adobe, always kind of talks about the first mile of product and how that should not be designed at the end. It should be designed really early on. And it's something that should continue to evolve uh, as your new users change. So, you know, there's a, that's another reason why kind of Slack has done a good job and, uh, it, with its user onboarding. Yeah, I think Slack is an excellent example uh, in terms of the seamless experience as well. Just signing up, inviting new users, um, simple things like the password, um, having the ability to be able to send you an email to log in as opposed to remembering passwords. And so I have a funny story about that. And, and um, that's something that we, you know, when we were early on, we, we kind of decided as well. We said, hey, look, no one likes passwords. Let's get rid of the passwords. So if you're going to sign up for Chameleon, then you don't need a password. All you'll do is um, you'll get a magic link. And that'll keep you logged in. If you ever want to log in again because you've been logged out or you're in incognito, just request a magic link. And it was very funny because so many people asked us about passwords. They're like, why doesn't this have a password? I want a password. And that was surprising to us because we were trying to make the experience more seamless. Yeah. And that was an interesting learning for us around, you know, not, it's the best design isn't the design that you believe is the coolest or the simplest or the latest or the most progressive. The best design is the design that speaks to your users and helps them cross a bridge. Uh, and so in so many instances, um, you know, with, with, you know, very, savvy tech forward people, maybe magic links uh, are the way forward. But um, for other people, they're so used to passwords, it's such an ingrained pattern, and that's what they expect. And if you provide them something very unexpected, then they become, uh, it's difficult, it, it creates confusion. Uh, and, you know, it, it creates friction in the journey. So it's, it's just a funny thing that sometimes uh, design will, will be counterintuitive. And, will, you know, everything just needs to be tested and evaluated to decide what's best. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. There's some areas that you don't want to innovate. I guess it does, like you say, speak to the early adopters, potentially a feature like Magic Links um, that uh, people are a little bit more accustomed to trying out new things. Um, yeah. So when it comes out to trying out new things and testing new products, obviously um, user onboarding is a big influence in, in user adoption and intends leads to retention. How do you see the role of user onboarding when it comes to metrics like retention and churn? 
Yeah, user onboarding is incredibly important for long-term retention. Um, I first noticed that working, uh, you know, before my current company on a mobile consumer product where we spent a lot of time doing kind of user research tests, uh, trying to drive top of funnel growth. Um, you know, mobile and consumer is really hard, but one of the biggest uh, impacts we saw uh, downstream for sort of 90-day retention was this user onboarding project that helped people really understand how to use our app. So that was the first penny drop uh, for me and my co-founder around how valuable user onboarding is, um, and, and not just for activation, but for long-term retention. So you know that coupled with this idea of continuing to onboard people to new features and updates really is uh, you know contributes to people staying engaged. Because think about it this way: as your product evolves, um, multiple things are happening. One is your sphere or scope of functionality is increasing. If you're not onboarding your existing users to that, they essentially are using less and less of your product overall, the percentage of the, the, the features that they're using. And so that leads them to be at churn risk. So you want to continue to engage your existing users um, with new features. And that's why we've seen the evolution of the product marketing discipline or, or the, the renewed focus around customer marketing. The other thing that's happening is that over time, your new users are also changing. They're not the same type of user that signed up for your service in the early days or way back when. So you have to continue to adapt your user onboarding for this new user, whether it's because they've got a different understanding of the market or whether um, your product you know, has different value proposition. So um, it needs to be something that's always there, always evolving um, to help drive uh, continued retention con- and, and reduce churn over the, over the long term. Very nice. Uh, then how would you say, so I understand the point it needs to be constantly evolving. You always want to be uh, updating and ensuring that existing users are kept up to speed. How do you measure success when it comes to user onboarding and what are sort of the metrics that you look to uh, be able to say, okay, this is a successful iteration. Yeah, there's. It's a good question. There's a couple of ways to think about this. You know, obviously, you want to long-term drive engagement, whether that's kind of how we measure engagement, thirty-day uh, engagement, or weekly actives, monthly actives, etc. You also want to think about leading indicators versus lagging indicators. If you're, you know, looking for 90-day retention uh, and you're using that as the key metric for driving improvements in onboarding, you've got a three-month cycle before you can evaluate impact. So you've got to find kind of something that's a bit more leading, and that could be an activation metric. So you might want to think about, okay, well, we know that people who are 90-day retained. Uh, typically take some of these key actions in the first seven days of usage. It might be some kind of something to do with account setup. It could be something to do with invites. Um, And so those may be correlations. Um, Ideally, you want to find causations, like if people take these actions, that's what helps them find more value and stick around. If you can find a causation metric or a causal relationship between engagement and some activation metric, that should be your goal uh, to get people too. Now, I want to make a very clear difference or distinction between this metric that you're trying to drive as a product manager or product owner um, and actually what the user journey and experience should feel like. So for a user, they don't care about this metric, right? That's not, you can't have that as the goal. Hey, I want you to invite somebody. And so my user onboarding is all about invitations. What they care about is aha moments. So that's points of value where they really internalize uh, or points of delight uh, and surprise when they really internalize the value that your product is providing them. So 
for on their level, you want to be thinking about aha moments that can give them some of this delight and value, and that will provide them sufficient motivation to continue on their journey and continue using a product, continue exploring such that they eventually get to this metric that you're trying to drive. So there's a difference between you know the metrics that you want to care about and track and the user experience journey that you want to design such that users are, are find your product fulfilling, engaging, and want to continue uh, exploring. Okay. Uh, let's get a little bit more specific then as well. Maybe take the use case of Chameleon. So how did you guys go around figuring out what your activation metric was and then again looking at the aha moments as well? What was the methodology behind that? Yeah, sure. So um, for us, you know, Chameleon is a software platform to build in-product guidance, in-product marketing that drives deeper product engagement and product growth. For us, uh, a core component of this is building um, a step or a tour um, from with, with a user. If they build a step or a tour, um, you know, and, and if they continue to build tours and steps, that for us uh, defines them as engaged and active. So one of the early, act- and there's multiple activation uh, goals, but one of the key goals is to have them build a tour. That way they, um, you know, we know that they were likely to be engaged. Now, on that path, um, we thought about what are the aha moments um, to them getting to the point of building a tour. Uh, a couple of aha moments include when they actually are able to see the chameleon editor inside of their application and they can create a step and it's super easy to see something that they're creating in real time on their screen in a WYSIWYG way. So that's really cool. Um, We know that people find that fascinating. Um, And so that was an aha moment. Another aha moment was being able to select an element on screen and highlight that element. So, you know, without writing any code, you can apply a highlight and and that's something that people love. Uh, Another aha moment included being able to add your own branding and styling. So one cool thing that we have is you can just type in your font into the font box input and it, all of the kind of the fonts automatically just adapt to your native font. And you don't have to pick from our list. You don't have, there's no limitations. Any, even a unique font that you're using on your page um, appears. And that's because we're just pulling it from your page, which is kind of cool. And people don't, you know, aren't used to it. So we looked at the kind of mapping out, okay, well, these are the aha moments. What should happen first? What, what will give them delight to continue moving on? And so then we designed our onboarding around encouraging people to do those things. So the first thing when they download the Chrome extension, we're like, hey, add your brand, add your styling. It's really easy. We pull the colors from the page. So they again, that's another moment of delight. They click in the drop down, they see their own colors and they can choose which one for which piece of the, the, the design. And I think adding that brand and adding that, uh, you know, personalizing that content for yourself also gives you the investment um, to then actually take another action. And that's part of developing kind of this, this habit or the kind of the hooked model that Neil Real talks about. So um, that's how we thought about the journey. Uh, but of course, the overall goal is to help them build a tour um, as part of their onboarding. All right. Uh, so interesting just to take another step uh, and like a deeper step, looking at the three hour moments that you mentioned, how did you go about figuring out those moments? Was it just something like intuitively internally that you decided on or was any other thing, any other research involved in figuring those out? Yeah. So the aha moment, I think it's, you know, there's, there's the aha moment. Uh, there's also this other concept, the magic number that the magic number is, you know, things like the seven friends and I think 10 days that Facebook talks about. That's more of the metric that you want to try and drive to. That's different to the aha moment. I think the aha moment is a very kind of, um, 
touchy-feely and it needs you to kind of do user research, qualitative user research to figure out moments of delight. And so the way that we went about that, of course, intuitively, we have a sense of what we think is cool. Um, but really, you want to go and do user tests. So, um, you know, when you kind of watch people using your product, uh, and then, you know, we did some of these tests, um, and we asked them what they thought was cool, what, what was really kind of interesting, uh, and they would reference these things. Um, we'd always also, you know, if you have sales teams, um, and you're doing kind of sales demos, or you're having people kind of, if you have customer success, or helping onboard people manually, then you can also record those or, or watch for reactions to those. Um, and so if you can get a sense of like, oh, people really like this, or where they start clicking around themselves and starting to get excited and discovering the product, um, those are points where you can be like, hey, you know, this is, there's an aha moment here, or this is something that they're excited about uh, and have motivation around. So um, we always have people tell us that, the, that it's really cool when they're able to pick their font. Uh, so they'll start adding, adding their brand, and then they'll pick that and like, oh, that's really cool. And it's like, okay, that's like a, a light bulb moment, light bulb going up. So, that, you know, through user research, basically, um, through being really aware on, on demos or any customer conversations, um, that's kind of kind of how we narrow down to these aha moments. All right. And then you have that feedback then coming in from different team members uh, based off of these calls and the different research that you run into. Uh, on the flip side, then you mentioned as well, like the Facebook magic number, seven friends, 10 days, um, in terms of like the more qualitative side of things, how did you go about approaching your activation metric and figuring out what that should be? Yeah, so I mean, it kind of depends. Uh, the, 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 the kind of the mo most rigorous quantitative methodologies to do regression analysis around kind of uh, the metric that you want to try and drive. So engagement with kind of various um, other metrics that you think are your, your magic numbers. You want to go in with a hypothesis and test if that is kind of a, a causal relationship. Um, I think, you know, when you don't have kind of the scale um, to do that quant analysis, um, then you can then you can kind of do, um, instead of doing a regression analysis, you can run experiments to see how something impacts downstream metrics. So for example, if you have an idea around two different um, actions that might impact long-term engagement, you can try and drive those two different uh, actions with two different groups of people and kind of see who is longer-term retained uh, and engaged. Um, for us, it's pretty kind of, it's pretty simple. Like if people aren't going to build a tool, they're not going to be using the product. If they don't use the product, then they're not going to be engaged. So um, it, it's pretty simple that for us that they have to build a tool. Now, we did have a question around, should it be a single step or should it be kind of a whole tool? But we also saw that um, there's if they don't build a tool, uh, well, I guess there's kind of multiple phases to it. So, you know, you build a single step, um, then you want to actually have someone uh, install the code snippet, and then they can build the full function, you know, build a tool because they can connect their data sources. Um, they can do a bunch of other functionality that you couldn't do just with a Chrome extension. Um, so we have a couple of different stages, but essentially for them to be activated um, and stay and stick around, uh, they need to have built a tool. Um, we also evaluated um, kind of churn post act post um, purchase because uh, many customers are self service um, and there's a, a free trial um, and so there's a kind of a two week free trial and then some people will put put a credit card down and they'll be fine to pay for the first month but they're still 
experimenting and they're still trying it out and, and they're not fully convinced. And so they may even pay for a couple of months. Um, but then if they decide it's not something that would fit with them or for whatever reason, they may cancel after that. So we also looked at activation, not just simply in terms of charging somebody once, but kind of post three months, you know, are they, are they happy and, and retained after that? So there's kind of more complexity or more kind of um, more subtlety in terms of which activation metrics for each part of that journey. Uh, but for the early pay- phase of onboarding, uh, we really want them to kind of build a new tour and build a step within that tour. Interesting. Uh, do you separate when it comes to onboarding, user onboarding versus customer onboarding? And do you see them as two different things or are they one seamless experience? In, in certain cases, they can be different for other companies. If you have a different buyer and a different user, um, then I think you know there's a, a scope for difference. Um, you might be having to onboard your customer who's purchasing, but then, you, for example, we, we see that you know there's a software that is sold to a CTO or CIO, um, but then you know they want all of the rest of the company to use it. Um, and so then there's two kinds of onboarding. And actually, you know, you can even look at one of our customers, Gusto, you know, they have onboarding for customers like payroll admins and then onboarding for employees. Um, and so there's a difference there. Um, for us, it's not so much the case. Uh, we do have a little bit um, for, um, you know, larger customers where that we sell to kind of product people. So the chief product officer or VP of product, you know, is going to be talking to us and doing kind of a much more concierge or personalized onboarding. And then there's a little bit of kind of training people on the product, the people that are going to be using the product. Um, there is, you know, other kind of differences um, in terms of how we separate customers. Um, but, you know, I understand the difference between customer onboarding and user onboarding. It doesn't apply to us so much, but I can see it applying to other companies. All right. What has been one of your biggest learnings when it comes to user onboarding? Uh, and maybe specifically in your case, what has been some of the uh, one big surprise that came out of it? Yeah, I think, um, I guess, uh, yeah, one of, for us, one of the biggest learnings has been how simple it needs to be and how when we think something is simple, it some it often isn't. Um, so we had a page where you ha- there was a kind of a how to download the Chrome extension page. And we thought it was a super simple page. Like you sign up, you download the Chrome extension, and there was a kind of a little couple of tiles, maybe three tiles that tell- told you click here to download and then op- you know click here to open the Chrome extension, the little icon that you get, and then click the button to get started. So we thought that was a really simple pro- flow. Like you, it's like how you download Chrome extensions. And that tripped a lot of people up. And it just like they were clicking on the on one of the images. They couldn't figure out, you know, once they downloaded the Chrome extension, they weren't like really clicking into it. So we realized that they weren't really reading all three tiles. And as soon as they saw something that they could click, they were trying to click it and then being frustrated if it wasn't working. So I think, you know, that's one of our, it was like an interesting learning for us. And I think it speaks to a really important principle, which is giving people a very simple uh, action to take. Uh, and so we updated that page. And so it, you, all you see now is like a pretty much a single CTA. It's like download the Chrome extension and there's nothing really else to read or do. And so that's much easier. And you, they click the Chrome, they click that button, downloads the Chrome extension. Once the extension is downloaded, 
and we can we can sense that then we give them the second piece of information okay this is how you open it and so it's uh that's i think really key for many companies is to really simplify their experience have one single action that a user should take don't give them a tour of everything just like what's the next thing they should do um and i think that's um, I mean, there's so many user onboarding lessons that we've learned um, over the course of our existence, but that's definitely a simple one that I think anyone can take away. Uh, cool. So there was one thing you mentioned uh, actually before we got on this call, and it was a really interesting concept, and I think we should touch on it now, was when do you see user onboarding actually starting? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, user onboarding starts the time that anyone has any experience with your product or service. Now, it's not just after sign up, because before sign up, they've had some experience of, of you and, and what your company is or what your product is. And that might be through an ad, it might be through an event, it might be through your website, of course, through your website. So it's important to reflect um, or, or be aware that there are these other touch points where you're educating users and helping shape their understanding of what to expect and what to be excited about. So I know there's this kind of in in our world, we're moving to a product first world where everything is kind of very product centric. And I think it's even more important in this instance to have a really good connect between all of the, you know, top of funnel or pre sign up messaging uh, into, um, into the product. Now, I'll give an example from us. Um, when we, you know, first, you know, we started working on this a few years ago, the market for our space was so early. Uh, people didn't really understand. And they were often the questions that we were hearing was, why should we have SaaS for this versus building it in-house? And so that's what our marketing site had to speak to, which is kind of what the benefits of SaaS and the benefits of continuous onboarding, the benefits of having a platform that allows non-technical people to build this. But then over time, the the messaging has had to evolve. And so it's no longer about educating people why SaaS, because more and more companies now appreciate the value. And so then it became more about how the technology worked and what it looked like and what was possible. Because again, a lot of people were first-time buyers. And so we adapted our, and I remember like creating these two very simple pages on the website. Like how does it work and how, what does it look like? To make it super simple for people to kind of really grok this is what the technology is um, and as they're starting to explore and understand. And I think now the next phase of the evolution is that people have now kind of understood this. It's starting to be the case where they've had some experience with you know, software like this. And so then it's now about kind of why Chameleon, what makes us different, what makes us better in our opinion um, and our customer's opinion and kind of the, the different kind of products that we have. So that's an evolution of our marketing message. And that's really important as we go into the product as well. So I think where possible, the user onboarding design needs to reflect where a user came from, what they've understood, uh, and teach those concepts. If they don't understand any concept, or say if, if they're clicking into your product and signing up for your product without really having a good understanding, because people don't read website pages as much now, then you need to start to re-explain some of those concepts. Like I often advise our customers as part of their welcome message for any onboarding, 
to restate the value proposition and restate why they exist and what's really cool about them. Because, you know, you can probably bet that people haven't understood this from the website or they haven't read it on the website. And that's not anyone's fault. It's normal. I don't read websites. I'm so ready to click and sign up and play. And so that needs to kind of, that messaging needs to flow into the product as well. And that's where we see kind of product marketing also having a hand is how do you kind of connect the dots between the marketing teams and the product teams? Yeah, I think it's very, very important that there's a consistent message and also that you're not misleading your users in any way. So that at least there's a clear understanding from the get-go of what to expect. And then if you follow that on with an experience uh, during your onboarding, that just makes it for a seamless experience for your users. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned product marketing and uh, user onboarding specifically. Um, how do you see the role of product marketing uh, when it comes to user onboarding and how do you see it evolving? Yeah, great question. I actually recently wrote a blog post uh, with the title "User on- for Better User Onboarding, Switch to Product Marketing. Uh, and the message around that was we need to have more of a marketing mindset when building user onboarding. Often, you know, teams will build user onboarding with the approach of how can we teach people how to use our product? And that's really not what users are signing up for. They're not wanting, they're not here for a training lesson. They don't, and you'll notice that a lot of people don't want to be handheld. Um, so what you need to do is explain to them the value and benefits inside when they're in the product to help motivate them to take certain actions because they themselves appreciate why they'd want to take those actions. And so if you go into it with a marketing mindset, you're trying to explain the value, the benefits, rather than trying to teach so and train. So it's the focus on the why someone should do something rather than the focus on just the how they should do it. So that's one piece of it where, you know, really the the marketing or the product marketing teams can help. I mean, I think we're seeing an evolution of product marketing such that the role is is a little transitioning from the kind of traditional role, which was very much around um, looking at competitive positioning and defining the messaging um, around product for as collateral for sales teams or as campaigns for marketing teams to where product marketing um, as a function and discipline is now taking more ownership of actually explaining the value of the product, whether it's through external sources or kind of out of product sources like blogs, but also in product. So how do you start to use in product as a channel for marketing, whether to existing customers or to trialists? There's so many free trials now in software and there's there's now this new phase of evaluation where previously, you know, it, you know, when buying SaaS, you may be getting demos and you might might purchase uh, software based on kind of a, a POC. But in many cases now, uh, consumer or customers, even enterprise customers, want to try the product out first. And so you have this ev- uh, evaluation phase. Uh, and in that phase, you know, there's another role for product marketing to help explain the value of the product uh, inside of the product as well through, you know, services like Comedian and others. Absolutely. I think it's like something that we do quite a bit at Otro is always asking the question, what's in it for them and why would they care? Uh, yeah, and have, it's a really important question to continue asking. I think it's it's very easy to forget that and to focus a lot on your features because that's what you're really proud of. And that makes sense. But as much as we can think about the customer and user mindset, the better. 
Exactly. And, and another aspect as well that we can touch on now potentially is segmentation when it comes to onboarding and making it a little bit more specific and personalized. So for us, again, similarly, we ask the question, why should we care? But then we ask it specifically to this persona's use case. So if they're a marketer or if they're in product or UX, they have different use cases for our tool. And we want to make sure that we're speaking to the value that they're going to get out of that tool. How do you see segmentation when it comes to user onboarding? I think it's one of the biggest opportunities and lowest hanging fruit, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, the one size fits all doesn't work in most other transactions. And it doesn't make sense for it to work when learning software, because there's so much software to learn. And we're learning software all the time. I don't want like a non-personalized experience. If I'm an admin for an account for some software that I signed up for, the things that I need to do are very different to if I'm just a team member. Or if I, like you said, if I'm a marketer, my goals might be very different to if I'm a designer. And I think the kind of the segmentation or targeting of your um, either messaging or your in-product flow is such a simple solution to giving people that personalized experience. Um, so that those, I think, you know, we have the data now, we, the data is available to start targeting and segmenting. I understand there's always a, a kind of a tension uh, in terms of defi- uh, deciding where to spend engineering time and whether it's to spend on continuing to iterate and improve onboarding or user experiences or whether it is to build new features and functionality. So I get that. And I think that's why we, you know, so- services like Communion exist, but it, it is something that I think every company should be doing. So, I, you know, find time for it in-house or use something that can help you do it. Um, I think I can also give, there's you know other examples of segmentation. I can give an example from Comedian where it's not just about role, but it's also about company size. We initially started off as a very self-serve oriented business. Anyone could sign up and try it out and get going. We believed in the product, um, but we've learned over time that actually for different personas, different kinds of onboarding is relevant and valuable. So for an enterprise buyer, they're actually expecting to have a demo call. They're expecting someone to you know, show them the product before they get going and try it out. So we've had to adapt and, and change our approach so that for smaller companies, you can go ahead and try it out because that's what our experience tells us smaller companies want. They're very quick. They want to hustle. They want to try everything out. And so for them, yes, go ahead download the Chrome extension, get going. For larger companies, we have encouraged it to be kind of, let's have a quick discovery call, understand your use case, understand your stack, understand how you're thinking about this, what your timeline is, and have a conversation. So it's not all about self-service onboarding for everyone or or the same kind of uh, channels even for everyone. Um, I think you do have to think about what are your personas and what do they expect and, and where can you segment for them. Yeah. And how did you go about uh, discovering that in the beginning? Uh, is that part of your onboarding flow? Do you, how do you understand the size of the company and how did you figure out that they wanted a more tailored experience? I, I think it was um, part of it is kind of, we were trying different things. Uh, we spoke to kind of consultants. We spoke to other folks that had designed and built flows um, or design and, and kind of sold to different kinds of companies. Um, I think also just what resonated, you know, when we did have, when we were able to have a conversation with the larger buyers, we ended up succeeding a lot more. Um, and so that was kind of part of the learning. There wasn't kind of a, a silver bullet, but it was kind of an evolution um, of kind of understanding. And we've tried different, you know, diff, you know, many different ways to, to proceed. We had a point where no one could sign up. We had a point where everyone could sign up. 
Um, we had a point where we used a chat bot to help decide kind of what you'd be interested in. Um, we had a point where there was kind of multiple paths um, based on kind of a native experience. We've had used videos. Like we've tried a lot of different things. Um, I think right now it's based on a, uh, kind of a flow on the website where it's kind of um, you get a little introductory video and I'll say a little bit about video in a second. You get a little introductory video, um, then you get to kind of ask kind of how big is your company and then we kind of uh, choose a path for you uh, based on that. Um, so that's the kind of current kind of process. Very nice. And uh, it definitely sounds like you're experimenting and uh, testing different things constantly. Um, yeah. How important do you feel testing and iterating is when it comes to user onboarding? So you touched on earlier that the experience is evolving for different users and you're having different sets coming and different cohorts coming in. What part and what? how much time do you think companies should be dedicating to experimenting with onboarding? I think ideally there is um, a, a growth team, a, a product growth team, or, or at least a product growth person or an owner who can think about growth uh, and kind of product growth uh, across the user lifecycle, uh, one component of which is user onboarding. And that's kind of worked really well. We've kind of spoken to companies like Pinterest or DocuSign and uh, and that's kind of how they roll. Um, I think there's the, if you can't have an owner, I think we do need to find ways to make it less of a waterfall process. I think what we saw in the early days was that teams would dedicate a lot of energy to building user onboarding by having a kind of a, a cross, cross-functional project and they do user research, they do a lot of great designs, they do the build. But then once it was done, there'd maybe be a little bit of iteration, but then they would move on. And then they wouldn't think about user onboarding for another kind of nine months or a year. And then it would become a real big priority again and be like, oh, we need to fix our user onboarding. Like it's been too long and it doesn't work. And so then they would undertake this whole process again. And I think that represents kind of an older way of, of kind of designing software, which was kind of more of the waterfall, waterfall approach. And I think now you do have the means to design a more of an iterative uh, and evolutionary approach where you're continually changing and, and improving uh, and tweaking. And But really to help enable that, you need an owner. I think if it's not someone's job to think about this on a regular basis, it's very, very hard to make that happen. So yes, I think we do need continuous user onboarding or continuous improvements in kind of dynamic user experience to drive product growth. Um, and for that, we do need uh, someone to own it. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely needs and I think as well what you mentioned, when it starts to sit between departments and uh, with different teams, you tend to sort of see less iteration and less uh, things happening. Uh, talking about growth, though, uh, let's touch a little about Chameleon and uh, maybe so you've given us a, a brief intro to what you guys do, but maybe shed some a little bit more light of how long you've been going, where you're at, what's your current status. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we got started because I was trying to use Asana and I had to watch videos to learn how to use it. And I remember having to have two different tabs on two different monitors open where we'd, I'd be watching a video and then I'd play it, pause it, go into the product to replicate that and then go back to the video. And it was, it was kind of a little difficult. And I, I thought, you know, the most people probably are not doing this. Um, and so that's kind of where the idea came about is how do we make it easier um, for product teams and growth teams or product marketing teams to build some of this user onboarding and in-product experiences without having to rely on engineering um, and so that's what Chameleon does, is it allows you to kind of create these targeted experiences 
for user onboarding, for product adoption, uh, for reducing support tickets uh, inside of your product without writing to, writing in code. Um, and we kind of have you know two hundred odd customers. Um, we are seed funded led by True Ventures, um, so we are still a startup, um, and we like working with startups. Um, but we know that there's a lot of potential um, and kind of in this space, there's a lot of lot that needs to be built. Um, one thing that we've seen recently as a trend is that so many people build tools that users maybe aren't ready to take immediately. So they uh, will kind of dismiss it and not in. And so people want a more kind of on demand way of discovering product and figuring out um, what is new. So um, users may not take kind of a tour, or they may not take, you know, may not read an announcement that you make, um, because they're in the middle of a workflow, they're in the middle of something that they want to complete. But once they've completed it, they may have a few minutes to go back and double check and see what's new and explore and play. And so, you know, we've, we've, just, we're launching a new product soon, around that functionality, uh, to help provide more ways for self-discovery or a, a simpler, easier experience where users can go ahead and you know, review the latest releases or learn some pro tips or complete some kind of checklist. So you know, that's, that's something that's evolved and, and we've understood. And so that, that's kind of what we're releasing a product for. So we're still early in our journey. Uh, there's a lot that needs to be bought and we know that this is valuable. Um, and so we're excited about continuing on this. Sounds very exciting, Pugets. I think uh, definitely is is a lot in there. And as you mentioned earlier, like a SaaS application, this almost is a perfect way to sort of cater to uh, those users, uh, growth product marketers, not needing to write a line of code and to be able to iterate and constantly test their user onboarding. Uh, yeah, thank exactly. I just want to say thank you very much for joining the show today. Like it's been a pleasure hearing your experience when it comes to user onboarding, which is definitely a critical component uh, when it comes to tackling uh, churn and increasing retention in the long run. It was a pleasure having you today and uh, best of luck going forward. Hope to hear uh, the success in the new year. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I would love to chat about this stuff. So thanks for having me on uh, and looking forward to speaking again soon. Thanks. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to Andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.